way that we approach this is through the lens of empowerment, not the lens of victimization. We're trying to shift that. And that it's been life-changing, sometimes life-saving for young people, literally. You're listening to Relish This, the Purpose Marketing Podcast. Here's your host, Stu Swineford. Hey everybody, this is Stu. Do you have an understanding of your stakeholder life cycle? On today's episode of Relish This, I had a really great conversation with Deb Fowler. She's the executive director and the co-founder of History Unerased. And they have a program that promotes LGBTQ inclusion in the classroom by helping educators with curricula and teaching strategies to talk about all the great things the LGBTQ community has contributed to society throughout the years. In addition to discussing how to consider her stakeholders journey through the engagement life cycle, we chatted about making sure you're swimming in the right pool to go where where your audience seeks information and getting your foot in the door by simply helping people with solutions to the challenges that they're facing, especially where you have expertise you can share, even if this expertise may fall outside of your mission. Uh, We also talked about some tools that that she can leverage to get on education-related podcasts. I hope you really enjoy the show, and here we go. Hi, Deb. How are you? Hi, Stu. How are you today? I'm very well. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure. It's really great to have you on the show. So you are coming to us from the Boston area, is that right? Yes, I am beaming in from uh, Lowell, which is just outside of uh, Boston Metro West. Oh, fantastic. I ran the marathon there quite a few years ago now and uh, just had a blast. It was just such a great town. Um, I was expecting it to feel a lot more like giant city sort of vibe and, and just the accessibility and the, and the ease that it was for me without a car. Uh-huh. I understand driving in Boston is a little different, but uh, on foot and, and using the, the train system was amazing. Fantastic. So when did you run Boston? I, actually, I first thought you meant the Lowell Marathon. I ran Boston in 2011. Fantastic. Well, so I ran it while. in 1996 and then oh, I was a bandit several times when I um, <laughs> jumped in to support some friends who were um, running the marathon. It's a great yeah, race. It's, it's so much fun. It, uh, I didn't have my, well, I say I didn't have my best day. I did, I did set a PR that day, but, uh, wow. but it was, I didn't feel that great that day um, and fell a little short of what my goals were. But, uh, but yeah, I just had a blast. Well, the beautiful thing about running is that you're everyone's a winner if you finish the race. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks again for being on today. Um, really excited to hear what you are do- doing there at History Unerased and learn more about what your goals are and and you know just kind of get a feel for for what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. Thank you. So, History Unerased, I, I, I'm the co one of the co-founders and current executive director. Uh, myself and Miriam, the other co-founder, we were our former, as I like to say, boots on the ground in the trenches, classroom teachers. Okay. And we, the idea for founding History Unerased um, was an evolution. Really, that's too long of a story for this segment. Uh, but we we prepared to to leave the classroom and devote our entirety of our work life to History Unerased in 2015. Okay. And we spent the uh, five plus years develop researching and developing the nation's first and only LGBTQ inclusive U.S. history curriculum for K to twelve classrooms. Okay. And when Phase Two was launched, which was in January of um, of this year, we started working with schools from across the country. Given that we offer the curriculum through a digital platform. And our trainings are virtual. It was quite timely, given yeah. what unfolded months later. Prior to that, we were working with educators, providing workshops and different types of trainings, and working through allocation funding from the New York City Council Committee on Education to develop curriculum specifically for you know New York City-centric for New York City DOE. Um, but the other curriculum that we had been 
working years in, in development of uh, was officially launched uh, this year. So our mission, History on a Race mission, is putting LGBTQ history in its rightful place, the classroom. But that is um, quite a long, complex process. And sure. since, since the onset, our focus has been on that in- providing educators with that intellectual preparation to teach this inclusive content with proficiency and confidence. And that's quite a process and requires um, ongoing peer-to-peer mentorship and support from us. So with our digital platform, all of the instructional resources, which are LGBTQ inclusive, but also intersectional, um, are provided are offered as digital PDF flipbooks as well as downloadable writable PDFs, and we have a, a library of thirty plus resources at this point. Our okay. professional development training, which is provi- is offered as a hybrid of live sessions and asynchronous learning, that follows our educator resource guide for contextualized pedagogy, which sounds really wonky, but what it really means is that this content is not siloed or separate from what is currently taught, but woven into the fabric of uh, a more complete story of America. Well, I think that's, I think that's great. I, you know, bringing all of that together, as opposed to having some sort of a segment on uh, LGBTQ um you know, inclusion. Mm-hmm. I think that that's super powerful. Yes. And, you know, there are many glaring spotlights right now on some inequities and injustices in the K to 12 education landscape and beyond, certainly. Um, but this is one avenue where, you know, reaching rising generations before those deeply unculcated mm-hmm. pathologies of racism sexism, heterosexism take root, this is, you know, normalizing um, all of these identities and and bringing a more collective understanding of who we are individually, but also as a nation. Well, I, I think that's a really great mission and I commend you for tackling that. I, you know, it's, uh, it's something that's certainly missing in, in my educational upbringing. Um, and just to, to, frame that a little more. I'm at, at the time of this recording, I'm 51. So I kind of came up during the, during the seventies and, and early eighties in terms of, uh, you know, fundament or foundational education. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, uh, LGBTQ inclusion was not, not part of that, that curriculum at the, at the time. So it's nice to hear that you are leading the charge on this. Well, it's been, um, it's, it's been quite a privilege doing this work to collaborate with, we, we like to say, kind, mission-driven, sophisticated people on this. And, you know, this organization has grown in our uh, representation and includes the voices, experience, and expertise of um, teachers, of archivists, librarians, curriculum developers, historians, students, of course, and other community members. So we're, we're very proud of what we have been able to accomplish in the past five plus years, but also recognize that at this moment in time, we're a rather boutique organization. And we would love to see more organizations like History Unerased uh, bringing this to, to the forefront as, as a profound need in the K-12 um, curriculum landscape. Yeah, there's probably a lot of work to do, but but you know at least you are out there starting the starting the trend, right? Yes, and you know it's it's funny. One of the most frequently asked questions is, "Have we received any pushback?" And I am so happy to say that we really have not. There is a, a, a profound awareness collectively, I think that that young people today need this because they are surrounded by LGBTQ topics mm-hmm. everywhere in social media, pop culture, uh, recent legislation, uh, the news, politics. And, and now it's time to bring in this LGBT inclusive history to help young people understand today's world and that historical path and progression 
of how we got here. Right. It didn't just start, you know, four years ago. It's, it's something that's been ingrained <laughs> in our, in, in our lives, even though, you know, people were closeted for, for many years and we, and we didn't talk about it. Um, it doesn't mean that it wasn't there. And so that's just really a, a great way to, um, to frame that narrative, I think. Yeah. And you know, our, all of our curriculum resources, teaching materials, are anchored in primary source analysis. So it's a non-judgmental approach um, to, to help young people acquire uh, transferable life skills as far as critical analysis and citing evidence to support their ideas. And within this primary source analysis are, are three different types of learning outcomes in, in this approach, and that is civics-based knowledge acquisition, um, tra- those transferable life skills and also enduring understandings. And one of the most profound, um, I, I think, is that, you know, of course, people who we label and understand today as LGBTQ have always existed. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, the the advancement of time is not necessarily commensurate with the advancement of equality and liber- liberty and justice for all. So in looking back you know, talking just talking about U.S. history back to early mm-hmm. colonial America, we can see we have a unit on Jamestown, and it's anchored in the minutes from a case from the General Court of Virginia, which was the highest court in the land at the time, looking at uh, the gender of Thomasine Thomas Hall and okay. the importance of the community to designate that related to economics and labor systems and which job was this indentured servant going to be tasked with and that equated to a particular economic value for that individual so you know the the curriculum we have is is called intersections and connections so there are just so many opportunities for young people to make connections to today's world for example one of the questions is are the courts interested in someone's gender today well, certainly the answer is yes. Yeah. Um, so, but also interesting in that case is that there was not a necessarily a pejorative angle to that. It was just kind of pragmatic. You know, to help build Jamestown, they needed to have really clear designated uh, labor structures. So. Right. Well, I think that we have a tendency to to perceive progress is linear mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, there may be dips, but it, but it typically runs in a, in a single direction. And that does not, you know, that doesn't, as you well know, it does not pan out in terms yeah. of when you start really looking at things. And so it's really interesting to see how, how we make strides and then, and then slide back and then make some more strides and then slide back. And, um, and so I think exploring the history and exploring, the context of, of how, you know, people were seen or, or the legislation or, or, you know, cultural norms during different periods of time is, is a really, really great way to, to kind of come at this. Yes. And young people are starving for this. Truly. I'm, we run, you know, several types of of programming. Our flagship training is for classroom teachers. We also work with, with youth directly through our youth equity leadership conferences. Okay. Virtual. And, and again, they, they're craving to have relevant content for, for what they are navigating in today's world. But to your point, that is something that, that they pick up on rather quickly is that kind of two steps forward, one step back, sometimes one Mm -hmm. step forward, two steps back. Yep. Sometimes. Yes. Uh, But their, their capacity for sophisticated, sophisticated understanding is, I think collectively the education system has missed the mark in that regard. Um, Right. And and in a well-intentioned effort to protect them, it has been Mm -hmm. doing harm. Well, yeah, (laughs) that's, that's certainly a, a challenge. So what, when when you are trying to get into a, a program or into a, a school system to to bring um, the the way that you approach this into their 
curricula, I guess, for lack mm-hmm. of a better better way of putting that. What's your entry point typically? Are you coming in at kind of at the top down, or do you come in at the teacher level and that gets pushed up? How how do how do you guys engage typically? That is an excellent question, and there's an ideal model, and then an actual model. (laughs) Sure. Um, So one example, we've been working with New York City DOE for, we're now in our fourth year. And the way that we've worked there is that through allocation funding from the New York City Council, we've been able to provide every New York City educator with access to these New York City-centric instructional resources, case studies in LGBT history. Um, And also we've, begun working with cohorts of teachers from different schools with a train the trainer institute model so that these educators then go back into their contexts and replicate the training with their peers. So that's, that's one model that, that works. Um, we just recently, not just recently, a couple months ago, we trained the Maryland State Department of Education's, um, all of their superintendents, district leaders, uh, as far as directors of curriculum and instruction and leaders in equity and inclusion. And from there, we're beginning to contract with, with individual schools for either district-level training with a train-the-trainer model or individual schools themselves. So that model is really ideal and it will take some time to see, you know, to gather some data to discern the efficacy of this. But from our vantage point on the work right now, ensuring that just at the state level and at the high level district leaders understand how to support, understand first of all, what LGBTQ inclusive history is because 99.9% of the population has not had that opportunity to engage with this as, as an academic discipline. So ensuring that they're, they're prepared to structure strategic adoption support and understand this work from a organizational behavior lens, you know, systems level lens and implementation strategy lens. And then with the, with the schools, you know, working with those individual teachers is a different framework. Um, but with that at high level buy-in, it's, it's far, <laughs> It's a far better approach. So with, right. with the educators, we're helping them unpack implicit bias within themselves and right. then segueing into where are there indicators of, of bias in the curriculum? Where can we tease out those blind spots? And then looking at taking a deep dive into our contextualized pedagogy as a method for systemic adaptive change and then practicing methods and strategies. What does it look like, feel like, sound like to introduce this, um, provide feedback to their peers. And then finally looking at learning outcomes and assessments and what are the indicators of students meeting or exceeding those learning outcomes. Um, And, you know, given those three different types, civics-based knowledge acquisition, sure, transferable life skills, sure. But looking at enduring understandings, that's a little bit more nebulous. So that's a, a really, it's been a really fruitful process to um, kind of elevate social studies education at the same time about how this can really impact uh, the collective community. Well, yeah, it's, it spills out from that, mm-hmm. from that initial educational foundation to, uh, to kind of everything. Um, so it's, that's, that's really cool. Yes. And, you know, given this new paradigm that we're in with remote learning, mm-hmm. it's actually been a, a, a great opportunity for history on a race to meet the needs of teachers and learning with this digital platform and delivery with the virtual trainings. And our approach has been thus far outside of New York city is to you know target our campaigns in states that have mandated policy for inclusive curriculum. Okay. How many states have that that approach at this point? Right. So California was the first in 2011, and joining California is um, New Jersey, Maryland, Illinois, Colorado, and. 
there are, there are um, inclusive uh, content in some state frameworks, including Massachusetts, but without the state mandate. Okay. Um, and sometimes, you know, I don't want to sound disparaging in the mandates because it's certainly a mark of progress, but, but oftentimes those remote vantage points of education policy makers is um, not necessarily connected to the realities of practice and implementation. Right. And that requires right. funding streams <laughs> and teacher preparation. Right. And the average, uh, here, here's a data point, which may be helpful to understand this per year. This is a national average. Uh, $56 per student is spent on STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. Okay. Five cents is spent per student on social studies education. Okay. History and social studies. So the point in that is that state or uh, district budgets, school budgets, are really constrained with what they ha- – if they have a budget at all, uh, it, it's minimal. Uh-huh. So our we've worked really hard to get to a pricing model that is affordable for every school. And yeah, for sure. That's that's got to be a huge challenge. It, yes, and and you know we we have a internally we call a stamina for standards, and that our curriculum is not open source because we see that critical first step of teacher training as vital, and so we. You know, what schools are securing is our training, and then we release the curriculum. And it's offered as each school has their unique password to access access that digital platform. So it's insular for that particular school or district. Gotcha. Do you come in at the district level or is it the school level or is it is it more state level mandate driven? So at that point, it's kind of everyone needs to be jumping on board here. Yeah. You know, honestly, it's all over the map (laughs) and every district is a little bit different. Okay. Uh, We have worked with small uh, 500 student charter schools up to the New York city department of education, which serves 1.1 million students. So, (laughs) right. (laughs) Right. So we're flexible. I'll put it that way. (laughs) Awesome. Well, it's it's really interesting, and the reason I'm asking some of these questions is to try and get a feel for where where you would go to expand your your programs. And and one of the places that is interesting, you may have considered this already, is if there's fifty six dollars per student for STEM, is there a way to come at this from a, a science um, focused historical perspective um, first? So trying to come at LGBTQ inclusion in the sciences as part of the science curricula. Um, yes. I mean, that that's a really great point. And part of our advocacy work is, is in that regard. Um, you know, our, our curriculum is cross-disciplinary. Uh, we, ha- we have some instructional resources that align with, with STEM and social studies, kind of a blended uh, approach. One, one example is out with HIV AIDS, and that's looking at, very timely, the federal government's response to the spread of infectious disease and what were the social, economic, and cultural influences that impacted discretionary and mandatory funding. Of course, this is for the high school level. Right. Um, and that's all anchored in data tables and charts from the Library of Congress Congressional Research Division. Um, but, but beyond that, to, to your point, one thing that's inhibitive for, uh, you know, funding social studies education is that it is not regarded as a critical core discipline. Okay. That shifted in 2001. And, you know, all of the the state funding and local funding that goes to preparing students for the test um, right. It's been taken off the table, primarily for social studies. So working to shift that and advance history and social studies, again, as a critical core discipline, may, maybe not necessarily for the purpose of testing, but just as a metric, um, is, is, again, part of our advocacy work, as well as um, working to 
with pre-service teachers and colleges of education to require learning about LGBTQ history and identities as part of mandatory curriculum for those programs. Right. So in terms of, I'm, I'm assuming that one of your, your goals or one of your missions is to expand your footprint with the ability to, to teach more teachers and to teach more students, um, et cetera. Um, do you see that in terms of a, of a, in, in a real top down perspective where you're going after States and, and lobbying for changes in, in the, in the mandates or, or do you, do you feel like that is a, a task that's better, you know, a, a, a battle that's better fought at the district le- or even school level? Yeah. So again, I, I just say it, but every state, every district's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be wonderful if a state mandate was not necessary, mm-hmm. um, that an addition into the frameworks and sufficient training would be sufficient. But sadly, that's not the case. So, it, it, and again, thinking about um, teachers being protected in doing this work and supported, having that state policy there is another level of support. Having their school leaders and district leaders and state education agency leaders in support of this of, of this is is vital. And that's really where the ideal model, national model, lies with the state education agency leaders in a top down, but also a bottom up. So we're um, ensuring everyone is on the same page, understanding what this is to disrupt that uh, misperception and myth and, and help educators come to this collective common understanding, common understanding of an agreed upon set of ontological terms and talking about it. Right. A collective understanding of, you know, what a series of whereas statements um, that help support and, and lead everyone to the same conclusion that we all have shared values for our schools and then and our students. Yeah, it sounds to me like there's a little bit of a storytelling component to this that that could be beneficial in terms of how do you. How do you propagate that message and demonstrate how powerful what you're doing is for everyone's self-esteem mm-hmm. as well as just their ability to fit in and, and be productive members of, of our, our society, right? And um, are you, how are you leveraging those stories that I'm sure you're getting out of your programs in terms of, of you know, kids feeling better about themselves and having a, a greater understanding of of you know, this entire ecosystem that we live in. Um, how, how are you guys leveraging that material that, that is, I'm sure, produced from your programs? Yeah, we have so many stories. We have so many anecdotal stories. Um, we would love if we had the capacity to, you know, be able to broadcast these more, more broadly mm-hmm. and widely. We're, we're bootstrapping <laughs> right now. Right. Um but in, invariably, we hear from, from feedback from students, feedback from educators that, um, you know, and the way, to, the way that we approach this is through the lens of empowerment, not the lens of victimization. We're trying to shift yeah. that. And that it's been life-changing, sometimes life-saving for young people, literally. And I think that has escaped the collective consciousness because if one does not see a reflection of the core, a core piece of who they are and what they learn in school, that is doing harm that could leave lifelong scars. But that one lesson or that one story or that one piece of reflection can change their lives and can be an anchor that they have, they see themselves in right. history. They see the, the, the capacity 
to contribute. They see that they have a place in society, that they're not the other, but a part of belonging to the beloved community. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, I'm trying to think of ways for you to combat that capacity component, which is, which is always a challenge. You know, even if, even if you are, you know, a fortune 50 company, there's always a capacity issue at some point Mm -hmm. where there's so much that you'd like to do, but you know, at some point there's, there's all, you always run against, run up against either you don't have enough people, you don't have enough money or some combination of, of the two. What a lot of times that comes down to is systems as well as, recognizing that we don't have to do everything to, to make a really big impact and a a really big positive effect on the communities we're trying to serve. And, and so just facilitating, you know, a story every, you know, whatever that timeframe is um, can be what you need to, to start, start moving up that ladder in terms of, of your ability to, to connect and, and going to those constituents who have been positively affected by your, your teaching and the, and your structure and how you're bringing this new knowledge into, um, into the school system. Um, I think just trying to capture those things and, and get that word out there in any, any way that you can, even if it's, you know, the same story that you use for, for three months, Mm -hmm. there are new people every day who are going to be able to find and um, relate to and have a a positive experience with that information. Yeah. You're, you're so right. I mean, that's what really moves people is that individual story, that one person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's the start, you know, it all, it always starts with, with, you know, every, every journey starts with one step. Right. And, and, and just facilitating, facilitating that piece and getting that out there. Um, and then building on it because, you know, once you get one out, you're probably going to get more people interested in contributing. And, and so they just start coming and, and then building a system by which you're, you're able to capture and utilize those stories is, is kind of that, that next piece of this and, and where, and then going where your audience or the, the people that you need to influence to get, to get buy-in, you know, going and putting this out there where they, where they play is, is a, a, mm. a big step of this. We got to find the right playground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like to call that you know swimming in the wrong pool, and and we see it a lot where people latch onto you know a specific social media platform that they like, mm-hmm. and they you know they're like, oh, I want to I want to be active on Facebook because I love Facebook, and that's awesome. But if if you're trying to reach a much younger audience or you're trying to reach a more professional audience, then that might not be the place to spend your, your energy mm-hmm. and invest your, your time and money and all of the things that are required to get a message out there. Um, you know, so, so really coming back to the idea of who are you trying to reach and where do they go for information? And you touched on this a, a little bit a, a while ago and I think I wrote it down, but it was essentially, you, you said people are, people are, are first asking the question, you know, what, what is this or what is it? Mm-hmm. And so what are the, what are the problems or the challenges that, that the people that you need to be asking that question are facing that's creating that question in their minds? Have you, have you thought through that at all? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I think the most often uh, what is conflated most often is that LGBTQ inclusive history is about sexual behavior and no, it's about constitutional protections and equal rights and 
access and opportunity in employment, housing, public accommodations, education, civic participation. So that I think has, is the biggest hurdle is that there is some kind of perception of immorality. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're such a puritanical society anyway. Um, but it, that's been, I think, inhibitive for some, um, you know, thinking that we're promoting a lifestyle or an agenda or, um, yeah. And, and I'm not faulting anyone for having those ideas because that's what's been fed through the media, through, um, you know, and I, I'm talking since for decades. Sure. Yeah. Um, and up until now, there has not been an educative space to look through a historical lens at this identity or, you know, a very rapidly expanding acronym to label <laughs> this identity. Right. Right. Uh, so, you know, everyone ne- needs and deserves the opportunity to look at, let's say, gender through that historical lens, biological lens, anthropological lens, social lens, to look at how we have constructed um, this LGBTQ community. Um, it is a social construct. And I mean, that's true because it didn't exist, (laughs) um, you know, 150 years ago. Right. So, but also within that, it is uh, an oddly unifying, binding identity because people who we label and understand today as LGBTQ plus exist in every nation and every belief system and every ethnicity and every community in every school Mm -hmm. and helping people to see that really that first pass of, of introducing them to what this content is, is critical. Whether it's a parent, a community member, a school administrator, a teacher, um, and of course the students. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I think so. I mean, essentially I was trying to, get I was trying to get to this idea of you know, whether it's a mandate that's that's causing an administrator to to question what what they need to do to accommodate this this new protocol or or something else that's happening within either within their school district or within you know a, a particular classroom or whatever the challenge is that that's causing them to start that exploration around around teaching to inclusion, and um, and so if we can get to <clears throat> some of those some of those questions that people are asking, um, so typically when we think of a this is a kind of a for profit model, but it's applicable to a to an organization or a nonprofit space. So when you think of a, a customer journey, so we might talk about that around a stakeholder journey in the, in the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. There's usually an, init- an initial spark that is just, I feel like I have a problem, but I'm not even sure what my problem is. And so there's typically some exploration that happens around that problem piece. And just like, what is this thing that I'm feeling that's causing me, you know, this challenge, or what is this, you know, this pressure that I'm, that I'm getting that's making me ask this question. Once and so there's an opportunity there to educate in terms of here, here are the problems that we see mm-hmm. without trying to sell or, or get buy-in on, on the solution just yet. Once the stakeholder has been educated on, on the actual problem, they say, okay, they can identify this. It's, it's been, it's been uh, diagnosed at that point. And so they start to move to the prescription phase of that, uh, of that exploration. And it's like, well, okay, what's a solution to this problem? And so they start to explore that second phase of that life cycle, which is, okay, I've identified, I have a problem. Now I'm looking for solutions to that problem. And that again, can be a very educational, um, 
avenue where you're not necessarily trying to sell them that you're the the right uh, facilitator of that solution, Mm -hmm. but that you understand that solution and you can give them ideas on the things that they might put into place to help overcome the problem that they've identified. So once they get to through that, that level of, of that, uh, that life cycle, um, stakeholders start to look for, um, partners and they start to look for, um, you know, purveyors of that solution. So where, where am I going to go to get the prescription that I know that I need to fill? And that's when you can start, you know, creating opportunities for differentiation in terms of your program versus somebody else's program or explaining features of, of what makes your system better or the right, um, you know, the right place to go to get that prescription fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And as we move people through that entire life cycle, we end up with, with, um, not only we've built a relationship because at the onset, um, you know, you weren't in there just trying to shove something down their, their throat to, to buy. You were just, I want to help you understand this problem. I want to help you understand a solution to this problem. And then at the end, once that relationship has kind of been, been, uh, strengthened, then you say, you know, here's a way that I can help you with this particular, uh, challenge that you're facing. And so you, you mentioned earlier that you had about 30, Flipbooks or writable PDFs that were part of your your protocol. I'm maybe some of those could be leveraged in terms of of kind of helping people understand how to get some some uh, traction in a in a you know a direction to solve that initial challenge that they're facing, or come up with other other options that that really kind of hit people at each of those levels of of their engagement. Yeah, I mean that that makes a, a lot of sense, and and some of those problems that that we've heard oftentimes relate to bullying, and mm-hmm. um, I mean bullying that that is dominant in the K to twelve space as far as att- wanting to mitigate incidents of bullying. Oh yeah, uh, and and that's documented. It's supposed to be. (laughs) 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 Put that little caveat there. Um, So there is a a way to track that and collect data on: is there a reduction in incidents of bullying as a direct result of the implementation of, you know, the prescriptions that prescription options? Um, Yes, that that certainly makes sense, and that has been. you know, the most valuable time that personally I have spent um, has, has been providing virtual demos and doing that needs assessment and, and hearing from uh, educators, decision makers, what what they have done previously, what their right. goals are, um, and and gently maneuvering <laughs> to demonstrate that that we could certainly assist. Yeah, so there's like a goals assessment component to that um, that's that I really like in terms of of coming at it from that from that angle where where you understand that they have a number that is yucky and they're wanting to reduce that number and here are here's some some things that they can put in place to help you know to help improve um, those metrics, right? Yeah, it is. We are are in a data driven society and unless that needle can be shifted, <laughs> um, there, there won't be an investment truly. What activities are you, I, I know that you're bootstrapping all of this and, and I'm sure just like everybody budgets are, are, are tight. What are some of the activities that you are you know, undertaking to try to reach out to, um, you know, new school districts or new um, you know, decision makers to to help them understand how um, adoption of your programs can help in in their systems. Well, we have um, a consultant who works on different targeted email campaigns. Okay, 
and we'll focus on a particular state or a particular region. Um, or uh, actually right now the campaign is focused on colleges and universities with a graduate school of ed in Kentucky, Georgia, and Florida and South Carolina. Um, given that this is, you know, we're stepping into the holiday break and professors are, are planning and strategizing for, for the spring semester with a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity on the horizon. Right. Um, but we also have, um, for example, the weekend after next, we are providing a panel presentation for the national council for the social studies virtual conference on the NCSS position statement on contextualizing LGBTQ history, which was co-authored by myself and our director of professional learning and development. And we'll be talking with um, a couple of other stakeholders, positions, vantage points, and it's moderated by Eric Marcus, uh, who's the creator and host of Making Gay History, the podcast. Okay. Uh, but as far as other strategies, that ha- it has been to present at conferences, whether it's poster presentations or uh, s- s- speaker events. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, any opportunity to, to be face to, I don't want to say face to face now, but virtually, virtually (laughs) front facing with the community, with the public, uh, we take it. Well, those all sound like perfect things to be doing. Um, so a couple of ideas and, and the first one is, you're you're speaking with me on on my podcast today. Are you going out and and doing outreach to other podcasters to get, particularly in the educational space, to get into their systems and try and try and be on their shows? That is something we have not done yet. Okay. So, but that is a great idea. <laughs> and again, thank you for the invitation to be here. Oh sure. So there is a program, and it is called Kitcaster. K I T. C-A-S-T-E-R um, dot com. And I was actually on Ryan's podcast. Oh, it's been a, a year or two, I think, since I was on his show. And he has a podcast called Talk Launch. I believe is still going. But he started Kitcaster because he recognized that there was a, a challenge with connecting podcasters with people who wanted to be on shows. Hmm. Um, and it's a subscription format, but you might look into it. Um, or... Uh, perhaps even if you'd like me to try and connect you with Ryan, he might have some ideas for you as well. That's fantastic. But essentially, um, you know, it, it's just a mechanism by which people who have a podcast and are, and are in need of guests can kind of tap into this pool of guests and people who are interested in being guests on podcasts can, you know, tap into that system. And, um, I would imagine I have, you know, I obviously this just came to my mind. So I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I would imagine that there's some educational uh, education based shows that you could be on um, that would just start to get your name and your, you know, your approach and everything that you're talking about into that, uh, you know, that common knowledge base and, and where people go to, to get information. So again, swimming in that right pool mm. can be, you know, if you can get to the places where people are going to get information, then that becomes, uh, you know, pretty, I, I think, a, a, a pretty good approach um, just to start spreading that that knowledge around. That's that's a terrific suggestion. And I just wrote this down in all capital letters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much. And if, if, if you could connect me with Brian, that would be uh, I would be most appreciative of that would, as well. I would be happy to do that. Um what was the other thing I was going to tell you? Um, well, geez, I went off on a tangent there and, or not a tangent, but I, <laughs> I went down a path and then forgot what my other idea was. Um, That's happened so to me a lot lately. <laughs> I think, so I, I remember what it was. It was around this idea of, of virtual, virtual learning. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned early on that, that you guys have this huge, you know, well, an experience now in, in digital platforms as well as a, a lot of materials. I know 
that that becomes a real asset. A, a lot of people right now are scrambling to to get that stuff. Mm-hmm. So being, you know, uh, you know, several hundred yards down the the proverbial path on that um, is is a helpful component. So really making sure that as you're going out and talking about this, that you're reinforcing the fact that this is this is a go to market today, as opposed to something that needs to be created. Mm-hmm. So that's one component. Then the second component is, and this is a little bit of a of a twist on on kind of what we've been talking about, and it's that you have a, a foundational expertise in how to create this stuff. So coming at educators from a position of we know how to create you know digital assets and and just giving feeding them um, information about some of the thing some of the challenges you've overcome or some of the some of the processes you go through or you know just the way that you've systematized the creation of that of those materials or you know how to create a flipbook and again that's not your that's not part of your core mission in terms of of you know supplying people with technical information however it does create an in an inroad into into their sphere as well as it starts to build that relationship that um is you know particularly powerful and so as they go out seeking so if you frame this from an educational educator kind of framework and and demonstrate that you have expertise in this space and help them solve this problem that uh, i know a lot of people are up against right now um that puts you, you know, on their side, and as they're looking for other solutions to problems, they have you in mind, um, and it just it just puts it out there, and it's just this kind of um, altruistic, philanthropic, however you want to think of that um, approach to to engaging with people. That Stu is another terrific idea, and that honestly had never occurred to any of us. Um, about that, but that makes a lot of sense. And in fact, person that I spoke with recently from Southern Georgia University uh, is very interested in in using our curriculum as as training as a portion of her programming there. But also stressed that you know she wants her students, these pre service teachers, to be able to mine the archives for primary sources and be able to build their own. So this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just this this past week I had that conversation. So that's that's terrific. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. It's um it's just a different way of of thinking about how do how do I get my foot in the door? Um and you know, sometimes sometimes you mow someone's lawn to, <laughs> to yep. you know, to to become their the guy that cleans their gutters or you know, that's a little more parallel than than this, but but certainly there are you know, you're, you're building relationships. And so, so leveraging all of that expertise that you have you know, spent the last several years building up, um, I, I think would be a, a great <clears throat> way to kind of come at this. That's fantastic. Um, I, I love that. And it's a different, uh, a foot in the door, mowing their lawn first. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, we we've we've seen that be effective for sure. When you just when you're just coming at things from this perspective of I just want to help, um, mm-hmm. you know, people that that resonates with people and they like they like being helped and they and then and this isn't the the goal here necessarily, you know, to to have someone feel like they're indebted to you, but as as people we just kind of do. That's how we tend to relate to one another is if, you know, if someone's scratched my back, I'm kind of interested in helping them out at some point and trying to figure out ways, ways to help people out. Yeah. Collective endeavors and responsibility. It's what we're all about. Yeah, exactly. And and Stu, if you want to view sample resources, you can do so or any of your listeners, if they would like to, by using sign up code B. F84BH at learn.unerased.org slash register. I'm writing this down. Mm-hmm. Org slash register. Okay. 
So that's great. Do you, I'm assuming that since you just gave me that, that code, I can go ahead and publish that in the, in the show notes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Please. Fantastic. Yeah, that would be great to just allow people to start to get a feel for for some of the materials that you have, and um, and I'll take a look and see if I have any other, um, you know, semi brilliant ideas ideas that you might be able to to use. <laughs> That's fantastic. One important thing I forgot to mention is that all of our cognitive organizers and analysis tools are offered in both English and Spanish. Okay. And one of our thematic units and one of our case studies is also both in English and Spanish. And we're going to continue through this next year um, having those, all of the content translated into Spanish as well. Well, I think dual language, I mean, I'm coming coming to you from Colorado. And so, you know, dual language has become a, a bigger and bigger component of of our educational system, as well as just the way that, that people are starting to do business. And, um, and so I think it's really great that you're demonstrating an additional level of inclusion mm-hmm. by, uh, by, you know, tackling that, tackling that head on. Also important to note, all of the content is compatible with screen readers for the vision impaired. Okay, great. Yes. In the spirit of inclusivity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, that's super important. Um, you know, particularly when that's your mission is to try and try and promote uh, inclusivity, um, making sure that you lead lead that by example, I think, is a, a fantastic way to to start that conversation. Well, thank you so very much. Um, you know, you you have mined some gold here. Oh, well, <laughs> for, great. Um, great. Greatly appreciated. And, and I love you know, thinking, even though we're a nonprofit, thinking about he, how we can also provide a service, a, a philanthropic endeavor to help support and elevate and provide agency for, for those folks, educators who are, as you said, scrambling right now. Yeah, for sure. I do like to finish, if you have a couple more minutes, I'd sure. like to finish the show with a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I got some major takeaways from you there in terms of some of the things that you may try to put into play. Um, if there are any others, I'd love to love to know what what you think you might try to uh, to to take away from from our conversation today. Well, in a, in addition to to that service of providing demos on how to create digital resources, how to make PDFs writable functionality, add a gaming aspect to that as well. Um, to, to direct them to archives and repositories and libraries where, where there are digital primary sources for them to explore. Um, and, and also the connection to Kitcaster and talk launch. I mean, that's another angle that never occurred to us um, to explore as far as a targeted campaign. Um, cool. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that was helpful. Um, next question is if people want to learn more about your organization, where should they go? They can go to unerased.org. That's U-N-E-R-A-S-E-D.org. And of course, if anyone would like to make a donation, we are always grateful. Every five cents counts. <laughs> yeah, that's one student, right? Yes, exactly. That's fantastic. And then the last question I like to ask is, and this comes from my, my idea that um, talking about things is awesome, but actually taking action is, is even better. Um, and so if you were to ask people to do anything um, after listening to the show um, to make the world a better place, what, what would you ask them to do? I would ask them to go to our tab, how you can help. And if they can't make a donation, of course, and make a donation, but copy and paste the text that's under there, that's on that page, and send that to their local school leaders, district leaders, school principals, PTAs. Great. And all of the embedded links are are there for them to share. Yeah, I think that's great. I think spreading that word about uh, about LGBTQ and inclusivity, and particularly from a historical perspective, is is a great first step. And 
And I'm excited to hear how you guys are doing. And I will make some introductions after the show. And again, thank you so much for being on. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Stu. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. Have a great day. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. There you have it. Another great episode of Relish This, the purpose-driven marketing podcast. If you want to continue the conversation and see how we can unearth some gold for your organization, head over to relishstudio.com slash podcast to sign up to be a guest on the show. 